You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Okay, Stephen read so graciously for us from 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn over there. He just read a portion of this really long chapter. And so, um, by the way, say a little bit about the scripture reading. It's going to be a new, we're going to start incorporating that into our worship service. And at the end of it, you'll hear, um, this is the word of the Lord. And some of you have this reflex that you want to say, uh, thanks be to God. And so I said, say it, absolutely. Just have at it. And you can say it loud as you want or under your breath. or You don't actually have to say that. You, you can say, uh, you know, Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The flower withers and the grass fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You can say that. It's a little longer, but it's okay. You can say it. Or anything that feels appropriate. We don't all have to say the same thing. But if you want to audibly respond to God's word being read, feel free uh, to do that. There's not anything bad in that, all right? So it's good. You know, first hour, really, they thought that was funny, Fritz and this, this group. <laughs> okay. Hey, we're talking about people getting their heads cut off today. This is fun, all right? So uh, hang in there with me. All right, so we've got, so he, he didn't read the first part of, of 1 Samuel 17. It's because it's long, it's got a bunch of hard names in it, and, and I can summarize it for you this way. It gives us the introduction to the place and the introduction to some persons. The introduction of the place is that this battle, this great battle, this historic, ancient battle of the ages is going to take place at a spot on the map called the Valley of Elah. And you can go there today. You can stand up on this hill in a place called Azekah. You can look down into the valley, and you can see this enormous valley of Elah. I mean, it's not a small, you know, it, it's a canyon. And, and when you stand up there, you look and you realize, oh, man, this is a great theater for war. Because on each end, you can have the, the military troops come in from each end and meet in the middle right there in this, this valley of, of Elah, which at some points in history was a valley of death, actually, because of the battles that took place there. And that's what's happened. The Philistines have come up against the Israelites now yet again in Samuel's work. Now, we haven't looked at, at either of the other two significant battles. We are considering the life of David but I'll tell you quickly about them. The first time the Israelites are going to encounter uh, the Philistines in Samuel's work here is in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. And you know this story. You, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably saw a flannel graph about it at some point. But it is when, it's before Saul's a king. So there's still no king. Samuel's the high priest. And, um, but Israel's going to go to battle against the Philistines because the Philistines, and then they go to battle and they just get beat. They get their pants beat off, okay? So they come back and they say, well, here's the problem. Uh, we didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. So they go, they pillage around, they find the Ark of the Covenant. They take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them because they're sure if they go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, God's not going to let his name be trampled on by the Philistines. Well, they were wrong. God wasn't going to give the Israelites a victory against the Philistines if they were using him as a good luck charm. 
So God allowed the Philistines to, to rout them. And then you hear about the Ark of the Covenant being taken. The, the uh, Philistines, they, they say, oh, well, here's the Ark. We'll take that. So they take it and they go and they put it in their temple to their god named Dagon. And you know the rest of the story. So they wake up the next morning. Dagon's lying flat on his, his face. This, you know, this giant you know, idol you know, made of stone. He's flat on his face. So they, they pick Dagon up. They come back the next morning. Dagon has fallen down again. Only this time, his head has fallen off along with his hands. Find out from the story, God, God actually did win the day. He, he did win. Uh, he just wasn't going to let the Israelites take any credit for it. So that's it. And they think, oh, well, this is bad. And they send the Ark of the Covenant around to all the cities, the five cities of the Philistines. And bad stuff happens every time. So they said, we've got to give this back. So they give it back. And that's what takes place. And then the next time, Saul is the king. And he's going to go against the Philistines. But he's getting beat. And he, you begin to see Saul's character emerge. And then Jonathan, his son, comes up, defeats the Philistines. That's the last time in, in 1 Samuel 14. Okay, so now here we are again with the Philistines. And they have gathered in the valley of Elah. And they're, they're um, all there. And then the writer gives us this really lengthy and impressive and exacting description of Goliath. In verse 4, it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. This means, so first of all, Goliath's called what nobody else in all of the Old Testament is called. He's called a champion. And it means he is the guy who goes to battle. He can go and stand in the middle of a battlefield, challenge anyone to a battle, and he has always won. He is the champion. There's no greater fighter. And you find out a little bit why, because it says it's six cubits in a span, which is somewhere, he's possibly he's nine foot tall or he's seven foot tall, something like that. But the average height of an Israelite was about five feet. So, I mean, even shorter than me, all right? And Goliath comes out and he is a giant. I mean, he's like, you know, the post on the, on the basketball court. And Israel is a bunch of spud webs, all right? With no skills. So, that's where they are. And he comes out, and then it begins to tell us about his armor. This Goliath of Gath to tell us in detail about his armor. It, it was impressive. It's, it would have spanned from his shoulder all the way down to his knees, uh, you know, covering against the enemy's weapons. And, and it, the armor, the chainmail armor that he would have wore... Um, would have looked rippled, and it was, it was bronze, copperish. It would have shined in the sun, and it weighed about 200 pounds. And on top of that, he wore a bronze helmet that had some weight to it, and he carried a javelin, and the spear tip on the end of the javelin probably weighed 20 pounds itself. He is an impressive figure. I mean, intimidating. And he would have stepped out there in all that bronze and copper and shined like the sun. You know, it's interesting, and I'll make a note here for you, but the, the word bronze there, the, the Hebrew word is nehoshet, okay? You don't have to write that down. Literally, it means copper, and, but you find it in a very interesting place. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, Moses makes a bronze serpent and puts it on the end of a stick. The word bronze and the word serpent, listen to it, Nehoshet Nehosh. 
The word bronze and the word serpent actually come from the same Hebrew root. And there are many scholars think that, look, the coat of mail he would have worn bronze would have looked like scales. Goliath would have appeared like a giant copper serpent or, or giant copper dragon standing out there in the middle of the field. Well, his challenge comes in verses 8 through 10. You hear, he says, hey, listen, come out and draw a battle up for me. Here's how we'll do it. I will go to battle for the Philistines. You pick your best warrior. He will go to battle against me for Israel. And whatever happens on the battlefield between me and him will count for all of the army. If I win, then all of the Philistine army wins. And you, Israel, become our slaves. If your man beats me then you win. All of you are winners. We're the losers. We become your slaves. That's the challenge. And he comes out and he taunts them day after day. And you find he does this every morning, every evening for well over a month. And the Israelites in verse 11, they are terrified in the face of a champion. He was bigger. He was confident. He had the latest high-tech armor and They knew they were no match. In fact, the word says they were dismayed and uh, greatly dismayed and uh, afraid. And and the word dismayed means literally to be broken inside with panic. You ever felt that way? Broken inside with panic. That's where they were. They were no match for him. So I, I don't know. Maybe they... You know, I don't know what they talked about as they sat around, you know, after all these days, day and night. Here he comes. Who's going to come out here? Maybe they're just gripped with fear. And in a few moments, here and there, they would muster up some courage and they would talk about strategy. But inevitably, this, you know, panic would come over them. Their hearts sank. I mean, they were overwhelmed. And what can we do? What can we do against a guy like this? And the writer is leading you to this place of just absolute, what in the world is going to happen? Is this going to be the end of Israel? And then in verse 12, it opens up, literally, the text says, enter David. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. Jesse was already old at the time, and the three older sons, David's three older brothers, went and they military generals and Saul's army, and we find out David, as he is being described, is not really very impressive. He's young. In fact, he's probably about 16 years old. He's the youngest of eight brothers. He's not a warrior. He's not in the military. He's, he's, he tends sheep, and he has been on an errand back and forth for his dad from his home in Bethlehem to the battlefield to check on the brothers and to take them bread and cheese and some supply, you know, picnic stuff. And so he wants, because his dad wants to know, how's it going? And how are my sons? And that's how we're introduced to David. And in verse 19, what happens is David, he comes, he drops the stuff off, and he ends up going to the front line of the battle to find his brother Eliab. And he hears Goliath wagging his tongue and issuing the challenge again. And the Israelites, they're afraid. And in um, verse 24... But in verse 23, you heard this as Stephen read it. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Only this time, look. And David heard him. So David hears this, and he looks around at all these guys. He's like, did anybody hear what he said? 
He is defying the living God. What, why, is it, why isn't anybody going out there and doing anything about it? In verse 25, and the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free. He can live tax-free in Israel. Somebody will just go out there and beat him. He'll have it made. Verse 26. Verse 26, by the way, you can write that. These are David's first words in all of Scripture, which is kind of astonishing because David is one of the most important figures in all the Old Testament. You find in the New Testament that Jesus comes from the line of David. He is known as the son of David. He is the king. He's the great king. He's the greater king than David. But these are the first words spoken by David. The 16-year-old boy found himself at the front lines listening to Goliath wag his tongue about how he's going to defy God. Listen to what he says. What shall be done to the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You were going to have your first words recorded. These aren't bad ones. David's silence is broken. And what he does is he brings a whole new world view. I mean, up to this point, the text for 23, 24, 25 verses, you know what it's been? It's been godless. They have looked with their eyes. They have seen this man that they know can't be defeated. They're gripped with panic. They are gripped with fear. They are broken inside by this treachery. And David comes and he now interjects or raises this godly question that says, doesn't having a living God make any difference in all of this? This guy, I don't know who he thinks he is. He's not one of God's people. He has defied the living God. And if God is so identified with Israel, you're his chosen People, do you think he's indifferent to this? Do you expect the God to allow an uncircumcised, pagan, blaspheming Philistine to trample his name? See, Israel thought that Goliath, this Philistine, was invulnerable. David looked at him and saw Simply a man who was uncircumcised, a blasphemer, and defying the living God. And that brings a whole new view of things. It is a question we ought to ask ourselves often. Now, it's not a magic charm. You know, it's not a... But but it's instructive. It shows us how crucial it is that right from the start, right from the beginning, before we go another step to raise the question at the very first, where is God in this? That we would have this theocentric thinking, this thinking that says, look, I serve the living God who neither sleeps nor slumbers, who sees everything. Seen and unseen has ordained 
the history of the world and the history of my life and cares for every millimoment of it. The living God. The tragedy is, it's not our first thought. We just so caught up in the moment or the circumstance or the crisis and we think, how am I ever going to Am I ever going to get out of this? How am I ever going to beat this? If I could just go to sleep and wake up and it'd be over. And But it's good to stop often. So what is this situation? Why is there fear and panic in my life that seems to defy that there is a living God? Well, it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. The, he has that conversation, and then his older brother, who is named Eliab, the one Samuel thought ought to be the king because he looked so much like a king, you know? And, and Eliab is there. In fact, Eliab's name means God is king, and, and he's there, and he's on the front line, and um, he sees David and listens to David interjecting all of these things about God, and Eliab takes issue. Now, I, any, of you, any of you in here have an older brother? Like, you're the young, and have a, okay. Well, I'm the older brother, all right? So, I'd like to think my siblings wouldn't read this as an indictment against me as their older brother, but I'm not so sure. Older brothers, they can get kind of uh, frustrated with the little kids. In fact, that's what he does. He looks at him and says, who do you think you are, David? I mean, listen, we're warriors here. We're trained in military strategy. We know how things go. We look out there. We see a guy. He can't be beat. We, we've, we've whiteboarded this thing to death, and we can't figure it out. Who do you think you are, little kid? And by the way, how are the sheep doing? It's what he says. One writer says this. In fact, one might say David has to fight three Goliaths in this chapter. For in Eliab, he faces the contempt of Goliath. In Saul, he meets the mind of Goliath. Only an experience can do this. You, you, you're not equipped to do this. All of that before he faces the carcass of Goliath himself. Well, this conversation between David and Goliath reaches Saul's ears, and Saul wants to know more, and so he has David brought to him, and, and so David and, and uh, Saul begin this conversation, and we are going to see, uh, so the first speech was verse 26, you know, what David says is theological bombshell, he drops in the middle of the camp. The second speech, the second words of David are going to come in this conversation with Saul, and even though we find out, listen, David's been in the service of Saul. He's been playing the harp, trying to ease the tor tormenting mind of Saul brought on by the spirit, evil spirit of God. There's a whole other sermon that Fritz is going to preach someday. And, um, but David's virtually been unnoticed by Saul. And there he is, and they're having this conversation. And David's going to use a word three times in his conversation with with uh, Saul, that means strike down, as if to make the point. He wants Saul to know that, listen, I, 
Don't say I don't have any experience in war. I've been a shepherd out on the field guarding sheep, striking down enemies as part of my job. And I've listened to bears and lions. I have defeated those. And this Philistine, he's just like that. He's just, in fact, he's worse because he's mocked the ranks of the living God. And the bottom line comes in verse 37 where David says, The Lord who delivered me. David doesn't take any credit for it. It's not like I'm crafty. I'm, I may be small, but I'm shifty. You know, I mean, uh, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. It's, it's, it's David's interpretation of the events of his life. He's looking back on these times when God was faithful. God did something and rescued him and was faithful and took a circumstance he didn't know how he was going to get out of. And all of a sudden, God shows up and does something. And sometimes it's so subtle that we have to stop and go, oh, how did that just happen? He is talking about looking back, looking back in faith on what God has already done, on God's faithfulness. What, what God did in the wilderness of Judah while, while I was a shepherd, he, he can certainly do in the valley of Elah. And it's instructive for us. Sometimes we need to stop and remember what God has done. We need to take our faith. Sometimes we are fighting for our faith. Remember what God's done. Or as the body of Christ. Listen, this is what's so important about the body of Christ. Because there are some days where we just cannot fight for our own faith. And we need those around us to fight for our faith with us. And for us. And one of the ways we do that is we look back on what it is that God has done. And then we go to His Word and we remember... His promises that He is faithful to. There is this rich history of God's goodness that He has proclaimed and preserved in the pages of Scripture and that He has proclaimed and worked in our lives. There is this you know, memory that says, I know, I've seen, I remember what God has done. And then there's this logic that says, hey, well, if God did this, then he, he, will, he will do this again. He can do this. Memory and our logic then go hand in hand. It becomes faith. And it's crucial to remember that. So I would say, you know, listen, if, if you have a hard time remembering these, and we all do, by the way, keep a journal. Write it down. Particularly in the times in life that you think these are the this is the hard this is so hard I, I don't I, gosh I just want to get through this I just I want it to be over I never want to think about this again write those moments down because as much as you think I I never want to have to remember this again oh it will be so building to your faith in the future. Well, in verses 38, 39, 38, 39, 40, I'm going to quickly get through some of this before we run out of time. I mean, I only have two hours, so. Um, 
There you are. All right, so Saul, in verse 38, clothed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he'd not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. You know, it's interesting. So Saul is going to give his armor to David. And some think, well, Saul is being benevolent here. I mean, he doesn't want to send little David out with, without any armor on. I mean, you know, he's got to have something. We can't send him out there without anything. Benevolent Saul, the king's going to give his armor to David. See, here, here's probably more of what I think is happening. I think Saul is dressing up David in his armor so that when everyone looks down onto the battlefield, they think it's Saul. You find out in the next chapter, Saul's going to be greatly jealous of David. And there's something about David's faith that he thinks, man, maybe David does have a chance, but better David than me. Right? I mean, you know who should have gone out there and fought Goliath? Should have been Saul. I mean, if you've got a guy who's seven foot or nine foot or whatever he is, and he's blazoned and looks like a copper dragon standing out there in the middle in the sun, and he says, send me your best. You know who their best was? It was Saul. I mean, we find out a few chapters before. He was a head and shoulders taller than every other Israelite. And I kind of imagine him, somebody looks around and says, well, who's going to go fight him? And Saul's like, I don't know. Liab looks pretty tall. Of course his armor doesn't work for David. It's ridiculous. Besides all that, David doesn't need it. I'm not trying to match Goliath. I'm not trying to be like Goliath. We do that, but... So he picks up five smooth stones from the brook. You can actually go to that brook today and pick up stones. I got some. And takes a sling, and he heads towards the Philistine. Gave, David gathers stone. You've got a Stone Age warrior against Iron Man. That's what you got. David is not going in strength. You need to hear this. This is what the writer wants to say. He's not going in strength. He's going in incredible weakness against incredible odds. Well, the next bit of it, is really dominated by Goliath, the Philistine. In 41, and the Philistine moved toward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And then the Philistine looked and saw David, and he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He's like, is this the best you have, Israel? It's not even worth my time to get out of bed this morning. You, do you mock me by sending a little kid? In fact, that's what he says. He said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Did you, did you think we're going to play fetch here? And so the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Remember who Goliath's god was? Dagon. So then David says to the Philistine, listen to David's words. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. That all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into my hand. It's a very powerful statement. Listen to this word. In the name of the Lord. There is a God in Israel. The Lord saves. For the battle is to the Lord. Uh, the battle is to the Lord's. Then he says, I'm going to give the dead bodies of the Philistines to the birds. Listen to Revelation 19 for a second. In Revelation 19, Jesus shows up at His second coming riding a white horse. And it says, and on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great feast of God and eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and all the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. And then the beast, Jesus, defeats the beast. And then it ends. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. See, it reminds us, as we read this about David and Goliath, this is more than just about David and Goliath. It's pointing us to a greater battle, to a greater victor, to a greater victory. To a greater David. Well, there's this whole build-up, and all the build-up for the battle, the battle takes place in two short verses, 48 and 49. When the Philistine arose, came and drew near David, David ran quickly toward the battle to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. There it is. That's the whole battle. That's what you were waiting for. Interestingly enough, you know what the punishment for blasphemy is in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament? Stoning. In Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 17, if you blaspheme the name of God, the punishment is that you will be stoned to death. In Joshua chapter 10, there were a group of people standing there in the valley of Elah, in this same place, blaspheming God. You know what God does? Takes stones out of heaven and throws them down and kills them all. And here, Goliath, the blasphemer, is stoned. And Goliath is face down, just like his God. There's a guy who wrote a book a couple of years ago, Gregory Bill. It's called, You Become Like That which you worship. No greater picture than right here. Who does Goliath ultimately end up becoming like? His God, Dagon. And to finish it out, it says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, and there was no sword in the hand of David. 
So then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Isn't that so fascinating that that gory detail is in the Bible? Cut off his head. You know, the Philistines, they're afraid now, and the Israelites, they are full of courage. It's going to tell us that the Israelites now, they're going to go out, they're going to now chase down the Philistines and rout them. But let me ask this question, why are the Philistines full of courage? Are they full of courage because they looked and they were inspired by the heroic acts of a little shepherd boy, David? I'm going to argue, no. They run courageously toward the enemy because they have already won the battle. Do you remember this? That was the whole contest. Goliath says, if you beat me, you beat all of us. All of you are winners if your man slays me. It's not courage, it's confidence in the fact that they are already victors. They already are conquerors. That's why. They're not, there's nothing left to win. They've already won. In fact, somebody somewhere said, we're more than conquerors. It was Paul in his letter to the Romans. This is what it says. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, Anything will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, it's fascinating. In verse 54, we get one more detail that seems so interesting to me. In verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, put his armor in his tent. You know, when the head gets cut off, it's hard for us not to think, I mean, not to go back and not to... Here in our minds, Genesis 3.15, the promise that God makes in the curse to the serpent that there will be a champion that comes along. There will be a Messiah. There will be a Savior that comes along. You might bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. David cuts off his head, and it says he took it to Jerusalem. And the question is, why does he go to Jerusalem? That's not where Saul lived. It's not even where David lived. It's not the capital. There is no temple there. Why Jerusalem? A few scholars suggest this, and I'm inclined to think there's something there. Goliath of Gath. 
Goliath of Gath. And when you say it in the Hebrew, there is a word that also sounds like Goliath of Gath in the Hebrew. Do you know what the word is? It's the word Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of the skull. We will find out a thousand years after this battle, there will be a greater battle at the place called the Hill of the Skull. And the David will defeat the greater enemy once and for all. Maybe that's why David took it to Jerusalem. Not even knowing what was to come. Which brings me to this little thing called typology. David is meant to point us to Christ. When we read this story, there are things going on. There are things that happened in that day that have a meaning for those people in that day. There is a, there is a larger story going on in all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And it is God telling the story about himself as king over his people. David is the one after God's own heart. He will raise one up later that comes like David. There is that story. And then there's the greater story. From Genesis to Revelation, a story of redemption, that God will send a Messiah. He will raise up a Savior, one that will be perfect, that will take our place in the battlefield, that will fight the ultimate battle, declare himself victor and us victors along with him. As we read David, we are meant to hear the echoes of what is to come in the son of David, the greater David, Jesus. In fact, in Luke 24, Jesus... Luke 24, after the resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. He finds two grieving disciples, and, and he tells them something huge. They're like, haven't you heard what happened? And Jesus has said, no, tell me. And then those guys remember it. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, them, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He opens up the Old Testament and goes, you know, you might not have known it, but here I am, right here. In other words, the Bible is not a book of fables. It is not a moralistic handbook to be read and go, oh, you know what, I need to be like David. I guess I'm to be like David. I need to walk out of here. I need to get my five smooth stones. And then, you know, if I was real clever, then I'd name the five stones. You know, the ones like faith and hope and love and good looks or whatever the five stones are. There's a problem with that. You're not David. and He didn't even need five stones. He only needed one. You're not David. God is not your sling. He's your champion. You want to be somebody? Say, okay, well, I'm like one of the Israelites. Or I'm, I'm you know, maybe if you're real special, you can say, well, I'm Eliab. But we're those that stand on the side. And we have no chance to defeat the giants in our life. We don't even need... We don't even, we know we're going to be defeated. We don't have a chance. We can't come up with the strategy to defeat the giants of sin and death and rebellion. And the hardness of my heart. I, I can't beat those things. I need someone to go and win the battle for me. And Jesus does. You know, so interesting. Eliab was there when David is anointed. Eliab knows that his brother is going to be. He's just been anointed as the king. He will be installed as king. He knows this, and yet he stands there like we all do, doubting our brother. Not sure if he's even aware at all what's going on. 
Maybe he's irritated because I've interrupted him. Or You know, we sometimes we question God's motive. If Jesus really has the strength to do something or if he really sees. Or I have the tendency to think it's all about me and my strength and, 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 and what I need to do. And then I get super discouraged. The circumstances are bigger than me. The surroundings are bigger than me. My weaknesses are far greater than my strengths. And then I remember, oh, yeah, Jesus. He's my brother. He became like us. He entered into who we are to become fully who we are. So that when He wins the victory, it counts for all those that believe in Him. See, the battle is the Lord's. Two things I'd say, and we'll close. And I can do this in three minutes. Jesus is a better David. You can write that down. Jesus is a better David. He's actually a better David than David is. He's the fulfiller of the promises that God made to David. He fulfills his promises by becoming what he promised. God doesn't raise up another prophet. He doesn't raise up another. He becomes the person that provides the presence, the fulfillment of all the promises. And he is the one who won the victory for the many that we can never win. So we get to look and go, he won. Oh yeah, that means I won. Because I'm in him. The shepherd of our souls is the warrior king who has gone before us. It's his honor. It's his glory. It's his valor. And he includes us with him. The battle is... The Lord. Not only is Jesus a greater David, I, I want to say this. Jesus became a worse Goliath. In Leviticus 24, 16, those that, those that blaspheme get stoned. Those that blaspheme, those that, that sin past the line, past the mark, they end up bearing a curse. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came, not only was He our victory, you know what else it was? He took onto Himself all of our weakness, all of our sin, all of our shame. He became who we are so we could become who He is. He is both the one who wins and at the same time He became the object of destruction and wrath on behalf of our sin. Paul says that in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Jesus became all the ugliness that we are so that we could become and enjoy all the glory of God. We have a king, and a savior, and a champion. He's good and he's strong, and we can trust him. If you're here this morning, and you're not a believer, you say, I don't know, I've been putting that off, or I'll do it later, or I don't know, I'm not sure I buy it. I, listen, I, I want to invite you this morning to believe. To believe God's word is true and that. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died and was buried and rose again on the third day. He satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the penalty of sin, your sin, my sin, and offers you His perfection, His righteousness, His right standing in return. I invite you to turn away from being the king of your own life and put your faith in the Son of God who died for you. If you've anointed yourself king over your own universe, it will end in destruction and you will have no peace. Listen, maybe all you can do this morning is just simply ask God, is it true that Christ came to save me? He will answer you. If you are here this morning and you are a believer, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, I invite you to rekindle that affection, to remember the faithfulness of your God, to believe again in the King who cares for you, the champion who died for you, the brother who's proud of you. Go to God's Word. Ask Him to meet you there. And may you find the grace and Peace be yours in the very fullest measure. So if you would, would you bow with me and let us pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would do what only you can do. Open our